Good morning. This morning we are on Wayward Part 4. This is a series of sermons that we've been in going through the book of Hosea. Today's text will be Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, going all the way to Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. That is a significant uh, like text as far as the size goes, if you were paying attention, uh, Hosea 4, 1 to 6, 3 would be two whole chapters plus three verses of another chapter. And as I was thinking about how, the, how big the amount of text is we're going to cover this morning, I thought to myself, maybe at the beginning of the sermon, I ought to answer a question that I don't think I've ever answered here before. Like, I don't think I've ever explained this on a Sunday morning before, but it goes like this. Hey, Mario, how do you decide how much text to cover in a sermon? Um, because you, if you've come here for a while, you might even be able to phrase it this way. You might say, you know, there have been times where we've showed up for church on Sunday morning and you just taught one Bible verse and you, did, you read one verse and then the whole sermon was on one verse. And then I came a different time and you taught like two chapters all at the same time. So what is the system here? Like, do you go into your office and just dartboard on a wall and like, that's how you decide how much Bible to teach? Like, how do you decide how much text to cover in a sermon? And so here's the answer. Um, The Bible breaks down into little sections that are called pericopes, okay? That's exciting. Okay, that's a real word. I did not make it up. Pericope, it's spelled P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. It looks like it would be pronounced pericope, but it is pericope. And it is when someone takes the Bible, I suppose you could do this with other literature as well, when you take it and you, you pick an extract, you pick an excerpt of it, and you go, this is the part we're going to learn. And typically what's chosen is one unit of thought, And so a unit of thought could be, like, you could have a pericope that is one sentence. You could have a pericope that is a paragraph. You could have a pericope that is two pages long. It's however many words that are there that the author used in order to say the thing that they were saying before they moved on to the next story or they moved on to the next topic. And so they vary uh, throughout the Bible. But people teach typically in pericopes like this. In fact, nobody would ever... I don't think anybody would, would get up and just teach like the first half of the David and Goliath story, right? You'd never show up at church and they go, okay, here's what we're going to learn today. Uh, Goliath was there taunting the people of Israel and David went to Saul and he put on Saul's armor and it was too heavy, so he rejected it and he went to the stream and he picked up five smooth stones and that is all for today. (laughs) Now let's talk about how it applies to our life. The stones, no, of course not. Like you can't, you can't talk about how it applies to your life. You have to get to the end of the story. You have to read the whole thing, the whole section. And so in the case of Hosea, this is what I noticed back in like December, January, when I was first studying the book of Hosea for this series. There are several cycles of the same thing that's said over and over again in the book of Hosea. In fact, it's not just several cycles of the same thing. It's really several cycles of the same three things that are said over and over again, pretty much in the same order each time. And it's wrongdoing, punishment, restoration, And you see this cycle over and over again throughout the book of Hosea as you read it. um, God declares the wrongdoing of the nation of Israel and what they're doing wrong. Then you have the punishment. Well, this is the bad thing that's going to happen to you because of the wrongdoing. And then there's like this, this statement of hope and, you know, repentance and restoration and things are going to be okay. And so you have the people point out their wrongdoing and then uh, God points out the people's wrongdoing and then the punishment and then the restoration. And you see this in this order happening kind of on a cycle. So for example, we um, are, we're in part four right now. So we did part one, part two, and part three already. Part one, part two, and part three all covered, uh, well, the chapter one, two, and three, like respectively. Okay, so in part one, we learned chapter one. In part two, we learned chapter two. In part three, we learned chapter three. And in those three sermons, you want to know how many times we've gone through the cycle? Three times already. 
So if you go to Hosea chapter one, you'll see in like a, over the course of about 12 verses, you'll see that that's what they, that the wrongdoing, the punishment, the restoration. So in Hosea chapter one, the wrongdoing of Israel is mentioned in verse two. Uh, it's for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Like that's where the Lord accuses Israel of what they've done wrong. Okay, well then what is the punishment? Well, the punishment comes up in places like verse five, where he says, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, well then what is the restoration? Well, it comes in verses like verse 10, where he says, in, in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Right? So you see the whole, one whole cycle there in chapter one. Then you move to chapter two, and there it is again in the same order. Wrongdoing and the punishment and the restoration. And then you get to chapter three, and you see it again. Although chapter three is quite a bit shorter than chapter one and two. Okay? The first cycle is 12 verses long. The second cycle is 22 verses long. And then you get to chapter three, and it's just five verses. But in those little five verses, you have the whole cycle there. So if you look at chapter three, verse one, it talks about what the Israelites did wrong. What was the wrongdoing? Well, the Lord loves them even though they turned to other gods. What was the wrongdoing? Israel turns to other gods. What was the punishment? Verse four, the Israelites must live many days without king or prince. What was the restoration? Verse five, afterward, the people of Israel will return and they'll seek the Lord and they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And so what you have is you have the cycle in 12 verses, and then it's followed by the cycle again in 22 verses, then it's followed again by the cycle in five verses. That's what we've done so far. And now it seems to me the next cycle is 37 verses, right? That's why we're going to do Hosea chapter four and five and three verses of chapter six, because there's 37 verses that show the next cycle that's in the book of Hosea. Now, one downside to this follow the cycles and make them the pericopes strategy is that what we have is a series where sometimes the sermon's on five verses and sometimes the sermon's on 37 verses, all right? And today just happens to be a 30 verse, 37 verse Sunday. So buckle your church belts. Here we go. Um, so Hosea chapter four, starting in verse one, I'm gonna read, I'm not gonna read every single verse, but I am gonna read most of them. And I'm not gonna explain every single verse, but I am gonna give you an overview of these chapters. Uh, the only thing I wanna say before I read anything is I just wanna remind you the two countries that are being addressed throughout this book are Israel and Judah, right? At one point they were all Israel, but they split. And so there's Israel and Judah that are referred to here. And then there's a third name that comes up a lot, and it's the name Ephraim. It's gonna come up several times in what I'm about to read to you, and it actually is gonna come up a lot for the rest of the book of Hosea. And I just wanted to let you know, as best as I can tell, Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of Israel, is being used in the book of Hosea as a synonym for the word Israel. Okay, Ephraim is used interchangeably with Israel. It seems like probably 99% of the time in the book of Hosea. So it's not unlike if I were to say to some people in this room, what's the name of this country? And somebody over here might say the United States and somebody over here might say America, right? Well, we're not talking about two different countries, right? We're just talking about two different ways of talking about it. And so as you see this, I want you to notice when it says Israel, I think it means Israel. And when it says Ephraim, I think it means Israel. And even when it talks about Israel and Ephraim together, I think it's talking about Israel. Um, I think that's it. Everything else hopefully will be fine on its own. So let me go ahead and read to you. So this is Hosea chapter four, starting in verse one. Here's our text for this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky and even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you priests. 
You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. The more they multiply, the more they sinned against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their transgressions. The same judgment will happen to both, people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not be satisfied. They will be promiscuous but not multiply. For they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. Promiscuity, wine, and new wine take away one's understanding. My people consult their wooden idols and their divining rods inform them, for a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. Skipping on to chapter five. Hear this, priests. Pay attention, house of Israel. Listen, royal house, for the judgment applies to you, because you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Rebels are deeply involved in slaughter. I will be a punishment for all of them. Skipping down to verse eight, same chapter. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Raise the war cry in Beth-Avon. After you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation. Remember, that's probably a synonym for Israel there. Ephraim will become a desolation on the day of punishment. I announce what is certain among the tribes of Israel. The princes of Judah are like those who move boundary markers. I will pour out my fury on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, for he is determined to follow what is worthless. So I am like rot to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king. But he cannot cure you or heal your wound. For I am like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. So as you listen to that being read out loud, or maybe you followed along, you can see that it sort of breaks down into three sections based on um, the cycle that I mentioned earlier. You could call them three smaller pericopes, okay? And the three smaller pericopes follow the cycle of wrongdoing, punishment, and then repentance and restoration. So I'm gonna go ahead and give you my outline so you can follow as we go through one section to the next section to the next section. So my outline this morning is gonna fall under three headings. All of the three headings start with the same letter, which is the letter C. Today we're gonna talk about the charges, the consequences, and the contrition. And this is the way that I've sort of broken down the, you know, the outline for this chapter of which each section. We're gonna talk about the charges, the consequences, and the contrition. For those of you who have come to church here for a long time, you may look at this and notice and go, hey, that, Mario, that's not the, normally the way you preach. Um, yeah, I know, I don't even like this. Like I don't typically, like I know in, it's a very common thing, like in preacher school, they teach you to go and like you, you have to have three points and then once you have the three points, you make them all start with the same letter so they're easy to remember. You know, and I, I've known that that's a preaching strategy for a long time and I've always looked at it and gone like, you know, I just I don't like it, I think it's dumb, I just, it seems so artificial, it's not the way I talk. And then suddenly this week, I was in the mood for it, so. <laughs> So we get what we get, all right? So we're gonna talk about the charges, the consequences, and the contrition. So we're gonna start with the charges by looking at chapter four, starting in verse one. So here's our first section. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. 
For the Lord has a, what's the word? Case. case. The Lord has a case. So the word case in English um, is a word that has sort of a courtroom feel to it, right? We use the word case when we're talking about stuff that happens in a courtroom, and that's on purpose. The English translators chose the word case because the Hebrew word that they're translating here is a courtroomy kind of word. That what, what God is saying here is, hey, Israel, I want you to get ready. I have a, like, I have, I'm bringing you to court and I'm making like official accusations here against you. This is like the formal, like I'm accusing you of what you've done wrong. In fact, that's why I use the word charges because in our culture, charges are like a legalese sort of term. Like when you go into a court case, like someone says, these are the charges, right? So that's what happened. The Lord is listing out the charges for the inhabitants of the land. What are they? Well, he starts off with this. He says, Here's, here are the charges. This is the case I'm laying out. This is the, what I'm telling you. I'm accusing you of having done this. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. We'll start there. That's the big problem. There is no truth, there's no faithful love, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. Why are the people messed up? Why is Israel the way it's going? Why are things getting worse and worse? What's the problem? The problem is nobody believes in me. Nobody's loyal to me, right? Faithful love could also be translated loyalty. The people aren't loyal to me. In fact, the people don't even know me. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Why is Israel like um, wilting away? Why is there, why is there, why is all, what is this problem with Israel and their spiritual life? Well, the, the root of it is nobody knows me. Nobody loves me. Like none of, the, none of these people are loyal to me. None of these people truly believe in me. So, and then he lists more sins. He says, so cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. Now, you may notice, I hope it's obvious to you, the sins that are listed in verse 2 are a little bit different than the ones in verse 1, right? The ones in verse 1 are sort of these foundational issues, and then in verse 2, these are actions that you can actually see, like, like a video camera could catch cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery and bloodshed, right? And so what we see is, he says, here's the case. He lists the problem. These people don't know me. They're not loyal to me. They don't even love me. Therefore... Look at all this stuff they're doing that's wrong. And so I want you to notice the sins that are in verse two seem to me to be likely rooted in the sins that are in verse one, right? You kind of have two different sets of things here, that you have sins that are sort of the symptoms that are on the outside, and then you have the sins that are like the core issue that, that, that everything is springing from, okay? So do you understand the difference between like symptoms and root causes? I think we understand that, maybe we understand that when it comes to sin. We certainly understand it well when it comes to the area of medicine. Like in the medical world, we understand the difference between symptoms and root causes, right? Like if you have, let's say you have a problem and you go, I gotta go to the doctor and let's just make up a problem. Let's say the problem is hair loss, okay? Like one day everything was fine and then suddenly like big chunks of hair are falling out and you go, whoa, this is an issue. So you go to your doctor and you say, doctor, I got a problem, hair loss. It's coming out in big chunks. I don't even know what to do. Like what do I do? My problem is hair loss. I think a wise doctor is going to be able to see through that. He's going to look at that and go, I get that that's your problem, but that's not really your problem, right? There, there's an underlying problem that's causing the thing that you're calling your problem, right? Like the wise doctor is not going to just go, well, yep, sure enough, I see I, you've identified your problem, hair loss. What do we got to do? We'll get you more hair, right? No, what he's going to have to do is figure out why is that happening, because there are multiple things that can cause that. Did you know that, that there's multiple causes? I Googled it, okay? I didn't know. There's so many causes. Um, you could have an autoimmune disease. That can cause hair loss. You can have a hormone imbalance. That can cause hair loss. It can be the side effect of a medication that you're taking. And so what a doctor is going to do is they're not going to just simply look at the symptom. They're not going to just look at the outside and go, yep, we've identified the problem. More hair is the prescription. 
No, the doctor's gonna have to figure out, is this a side effect of a medication? Is this a particular disease that you have? What is, what is, what is causing this? We gotta look at the root before we can understand what is, what is, how, how we actually fix this symptom. And I think sin can be like that. That there are sins that are like symptom sins and there are sins that are root cause sins. There are sins that are sins that are on the outside that you can see, right? You can catch it with a video camera. Look, that guy stole something. We, we can see it. But then there's the sin that's underneath the sin that's motivating it. And in fact, that phrase, the sin underneath the sin, I did not make up. There's a pastor I like a lot um, from Manhattan. His name's Tim Keller. He has gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, but, but back when he was alive and he was preaching, I remember him saying that. I think probably multiple times I heard him say that in sermons where he said, um, he talked about like, what's the sin? And then he talked about what's the sin that's, that's under the sin, right? That's the foundation for it. And, and I, I don't know, maybe you've never thought about this before. Let me give you an example of what I'm referring to because I think he's talking about these symptoms and root causes stuff. Let's say uh, you have someone in your family and they, they're committing a sin. Let's say the sin that they've done yesterday or Wednesday, let's make it Wednesday. Back on Wednesday, they, what sin they did was they were rude and they were unkind to someone else in your family. And it was, it was identified like, hey, that's a sin. You were just rude and unkind. That was selfish. You shouldn't treat your mother that way or you shouldn't treat your son that way or you shouldn't talk to your sister that way, okay? Now, what you can do is you can just, just identify the symptom as the problem. You can go, well, that's your problem, rude and unkind. So here's what you need to do. Be the opposite of rude and unkind. Done. Or you can try to figure out why is this happening? What is the sin that's under the sin? Because it could very well be that the person who is being rude and unkind in this particular moment, it could be that last week, the person that they were being rude and unkind to sinned against them. Maybe that person sinned against them, and then that person realized it was wrong and repented of it and said, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And then the person who is being cold and, and uncaring right now, it could be that that person actually looked at them in the eyes and said, I forgive you. And they were lying. Have you ever seen this before? They look, I forgive you. Nah, okay, I don't know how. Not, in your, not inside you, not in anywhere that mattered, right? I forgive you. And they didn't actually do it. And so then what you see what? You see the following Wednesday, there's this rudeness and this unkindness, but it's really... It's, it's not really the problem, right? That sin, I mean, it is, it's a problem because sin's a problem. But what's the sin that's underneath the sin? Unforgiveness. And so we see that here as, as God is laying out the charges for the people of Israel, right? He's saying, well, there's all the stuff. You can see the people are doing bad things. They're cursing, they're lying, they're murdering, they're stealing, they're committing adultery. But why? What's underneath it all? Underneath it all is they're not loyal to me. They don't really believe in me. These people don't know me. That's what this is all rooted in. Now, it's interesting because the charges in chapter four and even really in chapter five, I would say, the charges are mostly aimed at the priests. Did you notice that? As I read through it, it's the spiritual leaders that get talked about. The priests are mentioned. There's a prophet that's mentioned in verse five. Maybe the prophets were having trouble as well. The royal house is mentioned in, um, in uh, chapter five. And so we see the people, the leaders of the people of Israel and particularly the spiritual leaders are the people who the case is against. The charges are toward them. Look at, verse, look at chapter four, verse four. Okay, Hosea 4, verse 4. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you priests, right? Primarily, that's my concern, God's saying here, right? You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night. 
So I'm guessing maybe prophets were also not doing what they ought to be doing and not saying what they ought to be saying. And I will destroy your mother. And then he goes on to say more. But what's, what is, we see that God is saying his case is against the priests. Why is it against the priests? Look at verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But you remember at the beginning of the chapter, it said there's no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge, priests, right? I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law, I think that's the same thing as rejecting knowledge, right? Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. It seems that what God is saying here is, there's a whole mess of problems in Israel right now. The people are not doing what they ought to do. They, have no, they do not know God. Things are so messed up. And he seems to be saying here, and that lack of knowledge among the people stems from the malpractice on the part of the religious leaders. It seems that God is saying, these people are messed up and you all should have taught them better. They're being destroyed because of lack of knowledge, because of the forgetting of the law of God. Now, does that mean the people were not responsible for their sins? No, I don't think so, because if you go to verse 9, you'll see that it says the same judgment will happen to both people and priests, which I think that's funny the way it comes up in English. So it's, there's both people and priests, as if, people, as if priests aren't people. Like there's people and then there's priests. I don't know. I just think that's funny. Anyway, so obviously, though, the way that it was meant is the people is the, just the regular people, like the regular citizens, and then the religious leaders. The same judgment falls on both, the priests and the people. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So apparently the people were responsible for their sins. Apparently the people apparently had enough knowledge that they were without excuse. But I think this, these two chapters are really clear. The, the priests really botched things. And so Lord willing, we will talk more about that next week. The plan for next week's sermon topic is to really focus on the leadership in Israel at the time of Hosea. But for now, let's move on to our second heading, which is the consequences. So we've talked about the charges. What have these people done? Now, what are the consequences? Well, there are a lot of consequences. It's mentioned a lot of different times in these chapters and in the chapters that come after this chapter. There's a lot in Hosea about the consequences, but I'm just going to point out two from this section. One is found in verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, Ephraim will become a desolation. And you can remember that this seems to be the way he's talking about Israel a lot. Okay, Ephraim will become a desolation. Israel is going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be no more. It's going to become a desolation on the day of punishment. Meaning, of course, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. God is predicting the punishment ahead of time. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of punishment coming. And Israel is going to be destroyed. I announce what is certain among the tribes of Israel. This is definitely going to happen. Now, we know from history, I believe it was the Assyrians are the people who came in and conquered them. The people who made Israel into a desolation were the Assyrians when they conquered Israel. Now, here's another one. Um, This one is even more graphic, and it's verse 14 of the same chapter. It says, For I am like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Now, the I here is God, right? God is speaking to the people through Hosea, and he's saying, this is the prophecy. The judgment is coming. The punishment is coming. And I am like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Ooh, in what way is he like a lion? Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. This is a very graphic way of God saying, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to, I'm going to come down to Israel and I'm going to tear you all apart. Now, For those of you that know the history of this situation, this is not literal, okay? 
God, the God of the universe, did not in 700 BC come down in the form of a literal physical lion and tear Israel apart like a, you know, a scary version of Aslan from Narnia, okay? That's not what happens. God does not actually come down physically as a lion and tear Israel apart. Well, then what happened? What was the fulfillment of this? Assyria came in and conquered them. They were torn apart. Like the, the Assyrians came and destroyed them. But what's interesting in this verse is God takes credit for it. He says, I'm going to destroy you. And then what happens? The Assyrians come in and destroy them, which is very interesting because you see this kind of thing all over the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to do this. And then the this happens, but somebody on earth, somebody in the history of things, somebody in mankind actually causes the thing to happen that God said, that's the thing that's going to happen. You're going to be destroyed. And then the Assyrians come and do the thing that God predicted. In other words, when you see God saying, I'm going to do this, and then the Assyrians come and do this, you see God is sovereign over even the Assyrian conquest. Do you see that? Like when God says, I'm going to punish you, and then the Assyrians come in and punish them, you can see God is the one who is in control of world events. God is sovereign over the Assyrian conquest. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament where he says, this is, you know, I will do this, and then someone comes and does it. Now, what some people do when preachers start to talk like this is they go, oh, I don't, I don't know if I like that. So you're saying that when God wants something done, then somebody does it, and so God is the one that made the person do it? Like, did God, did God cause the Assyrians to attack Israel? Like, did he, like, like, arm behind the back, like, force them to do something they didn't even want to do, like, against their will? They had to conquer Israel because God said that they, they have to do it? Did he force them to do something they didn't want to do? When I look at the situation, I go, no, that doesn't seem to me to be what happened. It seems to me Assyria was a sinful nation as well. And when they <laughs> saw an opportunity to conquer another nation, they did, like many nations did back then, right? So then what's going on though? Because God says he's the one that does this. Well, because we see this all throughout the Old Testament. There are so many times where God says he's going to do something and then somebody does something. It's like, well, did that person choose to do it? Yes, they did. Was God the one that was sovereign over that? Yes, he was. You go, well, how can that all be together at the same time? I don't know, but I will tell you, I think one of the best stories in the Bible that shows these two things together is the story of Joseph. So if you go to the book of Genesis, toward the end of it, you'll see the story of Joseph. We covered it actually here at this church back in October, November, I think it was. And one thing you'll see in that story that I think is very powerful is the bro Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. You remember that part of the story? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and he ends up being sold into Egypt. And the story makes that very clear. It acknowledges that fact multiple times in the story. The brothers were bad. They chose to do a bad thing. They sold their brother in slavery off to Egypt. And yet, in the same story, it says God was the one that did that. Like Joseph says at one point to his brothers, you did not send me here, but God did. But they actually did send him there. Yeah, but God did. And then at the end of the story, you have the part where, um, and this is really famous, you probably you may have heard this even if you don't know the Joseph story. But toward the end, Joseph says to his brothers, he says, what God intended, or sorry, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Well, what, so wait a minute. So it's talking about something that happened. The brothers did it, right? And they intended it for evil. They were, they made, the brothers made a decision and they were bad for making the decision, right? And they were morally responsible for the bad decision they made. And it the thing that they did, was also something God did, and God was good for doing it. And for those of you that read the story, you know, God did it, 
and rescued all the people. Like the reason they didn't all starve to death is because Joseph was sent off to Egypt. You look at the story and you go, wow, the brothers made a decision. They were wrong for doing it and they're responsible for the wrong thing they did. And God was in charge of what happened. How does that all work together? I don't know. I'm just saying when you look at the story of Joseph, that's what you see. People are responsible for their behaviors and there is a God who is sovereign over it all causing his will to happen. Over the, we see this all over the Old Testament. God, it, people are making decisions, but God is also involved in the affairs of mankind. He's not sitting back uninvolved, waiting to see what happens. So the consequences here are, you have sinned, and so I'm going to destroy you. And the way I'm going to do that is Assyria is going to come and conquer you. So now let's move to the third part. So we've done the charges, we've done the consequences, and now, now the contrition. Uh, contrition is a word that means uh, like feeling bad for what you've done. And the contrition shows up in chapter 5, verse 15. So if you look at 5.15, it says this, I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. So who's the one speaking here? It's still God, right? God says, I'm going to depart. I'm going to withdraw from them. I'm going to withdraw my blessing. I'm going to withdraw my presence from Israel, Okay. I'll go back to my place. They will be alone without me, right? I will depart from them until, until when? Until they recognize their guilt. That's contrition, right? Until they are contrite, until they look and they go, we are the ones that are, that are at fault here. We have done the wrong thing. He says, I'm going to withdraw from them until they recognize their guilt. And not only do they need to recognize their guilt, they do something else, right? I will, I will depart until they recognize their guilt and what? and seek my face. So it's not only contrition, I feel bad about what I've done, but repentance. They're gonna have to seek my face. They were walking away from me. They were running away from me, right? And they're gonna have to turn around and seek my face. And when they recognize their guilt and they seek my face, that will be when I return. They will search for me in their distress, which that's also very interesting how he ends, ends the chapter that way. They will search for me in their distress. It reminds me of sermon number two of this series. Do you remember two sermons ago where I said, um, sometimes God will use negative things to call his people back to him? And we even talked about the story of the prodigal son. Now the prodigal son was sitting there going like, things are worse now than they were. I should might as well go back to my father because this is way worse than it was with my father. Do you remember that part of the story? And we said, sometimes God uses negative things to call us back to him. It seems like this totally matches here. They will search for me when? In their distress. I will make sure there's enough distress that they search for me and recognize their guilt and seek my face. So what are we supposed to do when we recognize our guilt? And I guess I'm fast forwarding to the year 2024 now. What are we supposed to do when we recognize our guilt? We're supposed to repent. And you see this in the very next verse. Look at chapter six, verse one. Come, let us, what's the word there? Return to the Lord. That, that's, that's, the, that's the idea of repentance. Let us return to the Lord. We've walked away from the Lord. We've abandoned him. So what do we need to do? Return. What, how, how, how do you return? You have to turn around and go back to where you were. You repent, right? Let us repent. Let us return to the Lord. Well, what will happen if we repent? What will be the result of returning to the Lord? What's the next thing if we return to the Lord? For he has torn us and he will heal us. Now you might go, what does it mean he has torn us? This was two verses after the lion verse. Remember, the lion came in and tore them. He has torn us up and, and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days 
And on the third day, he will raise us up so that we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. Remember the chapter started with, these people don't even know the Lord, right? They don't even have the knowledge of the Lord. Now they're saying, let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. So I just want you to notice here, repentance is essential, and it must come before restoration. That's the order it comes in. In fact, you can see that really clearly in verse 15 of chapter 5. Can we get that back up here? I will depart and return to my place until, until when? Until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. Repentance is absolutely essential. It was back then. It still is now. It must come before there's going to be restoration. So if I were like in conclusion, if I were going to try to summarize everything we've covered so far today, I would say this way. Sin is serious. More serious than most Americans recognize. It must be dealt with, which is why God deals with it. And we must repent for restoration to begin. So let me go ahead and end with uh, Acts chapter three. I wanna go to the New Testament, show you how this is connected to Jesus. I want you to see Peter and the way Peter talked about this. So Acts chapter three, just to give you some context. So what's happened here is Jesus came, lived the life that he lived, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, um, ascended to heaven. Spirit of God comes down, falls upon the earliest Christians, and there's like quite a ruckus in Jerusalem at this point. Peter then apparently has the opportunity to talk to all of these people who are in Jerusalem, some of whom were the people who were responsible for Jesus being crucified just a few weeks earlier. And this is what he says to them. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brothers, and I think he says brothers because he's Jewish and they're Jewish. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance. What is the it there? Killed the Messiah. Okay? You all, you all murdered the Messiah. You didn't know, but that's what you were doing. You did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. So that's a big oops for a Jewish person to kill the Messiah. I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Okay? In other words, you all killed the Messiah, but actually that was part of the plan. You all decided to put him to death, but really... The prophets had said, this is the way it's going to go down. His dying actually didn't ruin the plan. His dying was all a part of the plan. The Messiah would suffer, and he has fulfilled it in this way. Therefore, so now we know. We know the plan is going along fine, but we know that you guys are on the wrong side of the plan. Therefore, verse 19, this is the one I really want you to pay attention to. He says, therefore what? Therefore repent and turn back. And I think that's two ways of saying the same thing. I don't think it's I'm going to repent, and then I'm going to turn back. Like, that's all one thing. You are openly hostile to the Messiah. So what do you do? You turn around and go do the opposite of that. You repent and you turn back. You turn to Jesus. Why? Look at this. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I want you to notice that Peter connects these ideas of repentance with sins being wiped out and seasons of refreshing coming from the Lord. Where did Peter get that from? Where did Peter get the idea that if you repent and turn back, your sins will be wiped out and seasons of refreshing will come? Where did he get the idea to phrase it that way? I mean, it is kind of unique. For those of you that read a lot of the Bible, you know, like the gospel actually isn't usually phrased this particular way. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and seasons of refreshing may come from the Lord. This is sort of a unique passage. 
Where did Peter get the idea to, to, to preach it this way? I mean, Jesus didn't say it like this. I mean, as far as we know, I can't think of any place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where Jesus said, you guys are gonna go out and you're gonna preach that you need to repent so that your sins may be wiped out and seasons of refreshing come. I suppose Jesus could have said that. We certainly do not have, a, we don't have every single thing that Jesus said. We don't have a record of every word he spoke over the course of his whole lifetime. He could have said this seven times for all we know. But I'm just saying, as best as I can tell from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this isn't the way that it was recorded that he said it, but this is the way Peter said it. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know where he got the idea to say it that way, but you know who talked like that a little bit? Hosea did. Hosea sort of talked like that when he said, return to the Lord. He has torn us, he'll heal us, he'll bind up our wounds, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up so we can live in his presence. His appearance is sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. And so Hosea sort of talked that way. And 700 years after Hosea said it, Peter talked that way. And then 2,000 years later, here we are. And it's still true. So our sin is serious. It must be dealt with. There are temporal consequences for sin in this life. Even if God forgives you, there are still sometimes temporal consequences for sin. By temporal, I just mean not eternal, like temporary for this lifetime. It could be that someone commits a crime and they end up in prison. Let's just say they get a life sentence in prison. And then once they're in prison, this can happen, the person can become saved. Like the person can come into contact, in prison, come in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe, recognize their guilt, seek his face, return to the Lord, believe in Jesus, and their sins are wiped out and they're forgiven. And it may be that they are forgiven and eternally saved and they remain in prison until they die, right? There are temporal consequences for sin in this life, even when God forgives us. But there are also eternal consequences for sin, consequences after this life. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to take that eternal judgment, that eternal problem that we would have with God if nobody did anything about it. He took that judgment on himself and died on the cross in our place so that we could be saved. So our sin is serious. It must be dealt with. God has dealt with it. In fact, the best way that God dealt with it, in my opinion, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then repentance must come before restoration. We must recognize our guilt and seek his face. And the good news back then, and the good news still is, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. That's what it said in Hosea. That's still true. He will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Hosea. I pray that you'd help us to be able to see the sins that were happening in Israel, and I pray you'd help us to see ourselves in it. One of the times that we are, are doing things that are wrong, like you could catch it on camera and see it's wrong, but it comes from a lack of loyalty or a lack of knowledge of God or a lack of trust in God. So God, I just pray you'd help us to be able to see, to be able to see Israel's wrongdoings and then be able to see ourselves in this story. I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to deal with the consequences of our sins. I know there may be sins, like consequences in this life that we can't get out of. 
and we did this wrong thing, and so there's no way to undo this whatever that happened in this life. But I think you were not doomed to just see that for all of eternity. But rather, you sent your son to take on our sin and our shame so that we could live with forever with you, so that we could be restored, so that you would revive us. And so we thank you for that. I pray that you would form us as a congregation into people who follow you, who do what you want us to do, who think what you want us to think, who have the motives you want us to have, like underneath the actions that we commit. So I pray now, I wanna give us some time to just repent. And so I'm gonna be quiet for just a little bit to give us as a, as a church an opportunity to repent to you, God, that we want to recognize our guilt and seek your face. God, I pray that you'd help us to be able to see the sin that's under the sin. What is it that's underneath the things that I do that needs to be repented of? God, I thank you for when you illuminate our minds so that we see things that we would not be able to see without your help. And so I pray we'd be repenting people. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.